We are in this year-long teaching theme on authentic community. And living in authentic community um, as a Jesus follower is inseparable to what it means to be a Christian. The fact is that you cannot follow Jesus alone. Following Jesus alone is not a thing. However, because most of us have grown up in a Western individualistic culture, we have some serious work to do to get back to Jesus' vision for life together. John Wesley, the famous preacher and evangelist of the 18th century once said, Christianity is especially a social religion. And that to turn it into a solitary religion is indeed to destroy it. But honestly, this is what we have done in our culture today by making, by turning Christ into our little personal savior and our Christian faith into a private devotion, we have made following Jesus all about us as individuals, which is why we can get away with just attending church without any deep community here, or why we think it's not that big of a deal that we bail on church community when we find something we don't agree with at this moment in time in our lives. Now, I'm not saying that living in Christian community is easy. No one said it would be easy. Christian community is not easy, but it is necessary. Christian community is necessary in our discipleship to Jesus, us following Jesus. It's necessary in our becoming like Jesus. Living our lives in community is necessary for our maturation, that is, becoming a mature Christian. And living in community as a Christian is necessary for our witness making known to the world the way of Jesus. And what we're doing, and we're, we're actually we're trying to do this year, is very explicitly we're trying to recapture the way of Jesus in community. And today we begin a new series in the letter to the Philippians that we're calling The Life of Heaven. We're calling it that. Look at this artwork. Isn't that beautiful? My gosh, this year, just, I love, I'm just loving the artwork this year. Um, we're calling it The Life of Heaven because two times in the letter, Paul calls the Philippians citizens of a colony of heaven. Now, we'll unpack what that means as we get into the series, but basically what Paul means is that the church is a community or a city within a city comprised of people that live out the life of heaven here and now. The church is to be like this little outpost of heaven in San Francisco, a place where Jesus is Lord and not Trump or Obama, or anyone in office. The church is to be an outpost of heaven where we are organized in our relationships and our citizenship under the way God orders things in relationships, not our culture. Our culture goes one way. The church is never just to follow the culture, but be 10 years behind the culture. That's kind of what evangelicalism is, by the way. It's like culture moves this way societally, and then the church is like 10 years late and then catches up finally. The church is to be completely different, completely different, an outpost of heaven here and now. That's, that's what Paul is writing about. We're to live out heaven here and now. Now, of course, all of this is way easier said than done, way easier, way easier preached than practiced, and it takes a lot of really hard work. Some of that work is hard work just theologically. It's just figuring out what God says about it. Most of us, our theology comprises of certain podcasts that we pick and choose from, 
some Ellen and Oprah stuff, um, some late night talk shows, a couple of YouTube things, and some like things that we've binged on Netflix. That's usually what our theology comprises of. And it's really important to go back to the Bible and like, what does the what does the Bible say about that thing? How we're to organize, how we're to relate, how we're to order our lives. That, that's, that's some hard work there. But the hardest work, the real part, hard part, will be actually living what the Scriptures say out in our lives day to day. But why we're doing the study this year and why we're giving ourselves over to this theme, no matter how hard it is, is because we desire to be an outpost of the future kingdom in San Francisco. So we study Philippians. As we study the Philippians, this is how we're going to go through the letter. We're going to ask ourselves this question. How does Philippians inform and shape how we build authentic community? How does Philippians inform and shape how we build authentic community? And what I hope to show you, partly today, but as the series builds, is that that is, that is actually the, 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 the point or the, the context of the letter. That is actually the thesis of Paul's letter. So let's read Philippians one, I'll start in verse 1, I'll read down to verse 11, and then I'll jump to verse 27, okay? And then I'll pray. Just, by, just so you understand, this will be an introduction teaching. And in a series, when we're in a letter or a book, um, every teaching kind of builds on each other. So it's important that you listen to the entire thing so it builds in context. Because you're supposed to consume a book or a letter at one sitting, all of it at the same time. But we can't do that here. So we have to take it up in pieces. And so as we take it up in pieces, it's important that you get the, the, the big picture as we go along in the series. So just a little information. I don't know. Let's, verse 1, I'll, I'll read and then pray. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ at Philippi. I love that language. Together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you, all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth and insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Skip down to verse 27. And now know this, whatever happens... Concerning his life, meaning he doesn't know if he's going to live or die because he's in prison. Paul's in prison. Whatever happens if I live or die, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this church community. I pray that um, the warmth of Christ and the fellowship of the Spirit would have its way and its work in our church community. 
that the walls that we build up to self-protect would slowly begin to come down. If they have to come down violently, may you do that. If they come down gently, may you do that. We just want the walls that we put up between one another to come down, that we would love one another well, that we would serve one another well, and self-sacrificially love each other and show San Francisco and the world um, what a Jesus community, um, what the preview of the kingdom of heaven is like here. Um, I know that is a tall order. I know that's very, very difficult. I know that we have to battle against all kinds of things in our culture and our flesh, but Lord, by your spirit, would you give us the power You work in us, as this book says, to will and to do according to your good purpose. And I pray that would happen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The goal of the Christian faith is not to get to heaven when you die. That is a misnomer. The goal of the Christian faith is to respond to heaven now and to live under its rule here on earth. In other words, it's to bring heaven here, to live in heaven now, to live, as our slide says, when you walk into the building on a Sunday, in SF as it is in heaven. Jesus' first message he began to preach when he started his ministry was this. The kingdom of God, another place, heaven, the kingdom of heaven has come near repent and believe the good news. What Jesus is saying is that the rule of God or the kingdom of God or heaven has come near in his ministry that he's about to begin. Therefore, repent, meaning turn from other ways your life has been ordered and ruled and believe the good news that heaven is here and now and available and you can be part of it through Christ. Now, this is not just an individual thing. Jesus said, repent And believe the good news. He says the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and now follow me. Now that's not just an individual thing. It might seem like that. Because he's calling on individuals to repent. But what we see Jesus doing next. Right after he begins this message. Is he gathers a community of people. He starts calling disciples to himself. And we see at various different places, the people that followed him, both male and female, were, were a community that Jesus gathered, and he gathered them under the rule of God. And Jesus, who came as a teacher, comes to teach the way of life under the rule of God or under the kingdom of God or as if heaven was breaking into the future or to the present, because it is. Now, if you want a primary class on Jesus teaching the way of heaven— read the Sermon on the Mount. If you want the graduate level course, read all of Jesus' parables. Okay, so these followers made up of both men and women that followed Jesus, that were a community that Jesus organized himself under the rule of God or under the rule of heaven, these followers made up of men and women would later become known as an ecclesia. That's a, a Greek word. Ecclesia literally means assembly in Greek, okay? And I don't have time to get into it, but it had a lot of socio-political meaning as well. But Paul hijacks this word assembly and turns it into meaning the church. And what Paul is actually doing, he's like, the church is an, is a, uh, is an assembly that's, a, that's set up against the assemblies of the world. That the world is assembled or organized politically in a certain way, but the church is to be organized and politically uh, organized politically a different way under the rule of God. 
Not any, any worldly politics at all, but under the rule of God. So ecclesia literally means assembly or the translation that we have in our Bibles is church. Now an ecclesia is an assembly of people who confess and worship Jesus as exalted, crucified king. Now this is important because after Jesus died and rose again, he left to the disciples the responsibility to go from place to place, from city to city, calling people to repent and follow Jesus. And when they did that, they did that the same way actually we do this today. The way they did that in the early church is by going from city to city, starting ecclesias, starting little small assemblies of people who have repented or people that did repent and believe the good news and who have made Jesus their Lord. And Jesus their Lord also is another political statement. Because when the early church said Jesus is Lord, there was a phrase around the Roman Empire that Caesar is Lord. And they're like, no, Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. I submit to Jesus. Actually, Paul's in prison writing this letter because he's proclaiming Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not Lord. Okay, that, but that's a whole different. We'll get there next week maybe. So this small assembly of people who are called out from the world, from the Roman Empire live as if Jesus is Lord. And together, alongside others in the assembly, they have ordered their lives, their finances, their relationships around one another and ultimately under Jesus. Now, ecclesias were a place where the life of heaven was lived out in cities all across Roman Empire. So you would go to a town and you would hope that there was an ecclesia there. There was an assembly of God's people living under the new covenant in the way of Jesus. And this is important because one of these ecclesias that was started by Paul, who was the most prolific early church startup founder or church planter, he started this church, this ecclesia, in Philippi. You can read about that in Acts 16. We might do that next week. Now, I know Philippians is a very popular book or letter actually because of all of its famous Bible verses that are found in Philippians. Verses that end up in coffee, on coffee mugs um, and Christian calendars and bumper stickers and of course Stephen Curry's basketball shoes. <laughs> verses like, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. And of course, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Shout out to Steph Curry's all-star game dunk. No one thought he could do it. All things through Christ. Just joking. That's not what that verse means, but we'll get there later. And those, those verses are very important and really, really good. What the letter is actually doing is offering us a concise summary of what godly relationships look like and the vision Paul has for authentic Christian community. And this will challenge us. Not only because any community, any community challenges us. Any community. If you just start a new work community, it's going to be challenging. If you start a new relationship community, it's going to be challenging. A new community group, challenge. Every community is challenging. But because the community that Paul envisions 
the community that we'll see in a second is shaped like Jesus, it will challenge us at our core. It will challenge every part of us, which is probably if you take uh, the Jesus community seriously, why a lot of people don't opt into the full expression of the Jesus community because it's just way too dang hard. Ronald Roheiser, in his book, The Shattered Lantern, I can't even say that. I say that 10 times fast. It's so hard. Shattered Lantern, did I say it right? I think, writes about, and this this is great. I've quoted Roheiser a ton to this church. I just love his writing so much. But in this book, he writes about how our current culture finds it very hard. And you might really identify with this. He says, our current culture finds it very hard to sense and experience the felt presence of God in our lives. It's really hard to feel the presence of God. And he says, the few reasons are to blame for this. There's a few reasons why we can't experience God, why we find it hard to experience the felt presence of God in our lives. The reason, number one, he writes in his book, is because of our narcissism. Our insatiable desire to make everything about us. One of the ways he describes our current narcissism is by what he calls the yuppie instinct for the quality of life. He writes this. Listen, this is so good. He writes, what is a yuppie? We guide our lives more by unconscious myth and feeling than we do by rationality. And so we may define the term yuppie by four interpenetrating slogans. Here they are. A yuppie, the quality of life, upward mobility, the pursuit of excellence, and material comfort. Those are the four slogans a yuppie lives by. Quality of life, upward mobility, the pursuit of excellence, and material comfort. He writes, obviously, not all of this is bad or nor novel. People have always wanted these things, and the myths of past generations, rags to riches, work hard and get ahead, hardly seem different. Neither is there anything inherently immoral in these things. The emphasis on excellence should not be challenged. What is novel, less moral, and needs challenge is the fact that it is It is tied to an explicit philosophy of life which unbridled individualism, selfishness, and personal development are unabashedly held up as virtues. Self, listen, this is so prophetic. Self-development is salvation, pure and simple. Everything, marriage, family, community, justice, church, morality, service to others, sacrifice— makes sense and has value only insofar as it enhances one's self. Self-development is pursued with a sense of duty and asceticism that were formerly reserved for religion because for the yuppie, self-development is salvation, the religious project. That is so prophetically true. I have been ministering to and pastoring millennials, which this room is full of them, starting in 1996. I grew up with you all. I'm not a millennial. I'm a proud Gen Xer. (laughs) I grew up ministering to, serving, pastoring millennials ever since 96 when you guys were like in junior high and then just... Kind of like followed you and pastored you in junior high and then high school and then college and ended up planning a church with a bunch of y'all, okay? So I will say this. 
watching the spirituality of millennials develop over these 20-something years, I've seen self-development reach a fever pitch to where if church and and the ways it calls you to serve does not optimize your life, does not add something you deem valuable to your time, by and large, you're gone. You're gone. You're gone from serving. You're gone from participating. You're gone from giving. You're gone from community. You will show up to this church as it optimizes your life or your spirituality or how it makes you you feel or something like that. If it calls you to something that you do not, I don't see how this adds value to my life, you will cut it from your life. You will show up to community group when it adds value to your life, but when it doesn't add value to your life, you peace out. All your, our God, millennials God, what this is Royal Hyatt says, is self-development. It's all about the self. In the words of David Foster Wallace, this is water. This is your water. This is what you swim in. This is what you live. This is what you breathe. And it's toxic and it's killing you. Not only is it killing you, it's killing your relationship with God where you feel like you can't feel God anymore because it's all about how you feel. But I have good news. There is a cure. And the cure to this is Paul's master story. And the thesis and the core of this master story is found in Philippians. Actually, the core of Paul's central message of his entire life is found all over his writings, but it's essentially found and especially found in Philippians and in chapter 2. It's the story that drives Paul's life and what he tries to get every church he starts or has a part in shaping to understand and to live into. And here is Paul's kind of master thesis for life. And this is what he wants everyone to understand and everyone to live into. And it's a, 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 it's, it's a um, theological word, but I think you understand it. And the word is cruciformity. He wants everyone to be cruciform. He wants every church to be cruciform. Cruciformity is conformity to the crucified Christ. That your life would take the form or the shape of the cross. Cruciformity is not just a cure to our narcissism because that would make it all about us. Cruciformity is the desired shape of every Christian's life and the shape of every Christian community. Michael Gorman, who made this term popular theologically, says this. What Paul means by conformity to the crucified Christ is showing that this conformity is a dynamic correspondence in daily life to the strange story of Christ crucified as the primary way of expressing the love and the grace of God. Paul's mission in life was to seek to order the lives of Christian congregations by pulling everything into the tremendous gravitational field of the cross. This is all Paul did with every one of his letters. He's trying to pull everyone into the gravitational field of the cross. Your life should be ordered by the cross. It should be why you're saved, why you worship Jesus as Lord and Savior, and how you live your life out as an expression of the fact that you're a Christian. Now, I know that we talk a lot about freedom and victory and resurrection, and those are very true and all part of the story. But the controlling narrative of the Jesus community has always been the cross. Always. It's the cross that makes Christianity distinct from any other world religion. Hans Kung, in his book On Being a Christian, writes this. 
Paul succeeded more clearly than anyone in expressing what is the ultimately distinguishing feature of Christianity. The distinguishing feature of Christianity, as opposed to the ancient world religions and the, and the modern humanisms, is quite literally, according to Paul, this Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. It is not indeed as risen, exalted, living, divine, but as crucified that this Jesus Christ is distinguished unmistakably from the many risen, exalted, living gods and deified founders from religion, from the Caesars, geniuses, and heroes of world history. What, Carl, what Hans is saying there is that all the other world religions, every world religion, every world system has exalted something. They worship something exalted, some victory, something like that. The Caesars did, America does, everyone does. What makes Christianity different is that we worship a crucified Savior. And at the point of crucifixion is the point of our salvation. The point of crucifixion is the point of our lives and the way that we're supposed to live it out in this world. Now, the idea of a crucified Savior a crucified Messiah, a crucified king, a crucified deity was ludicrous to Jews and non-Jews in the first century. Now, I can't even think of a cultural equivalent to this. I've tried to think about it. To do it would actually be offensive almost to the cross or offensive to Jesus because it, the cross would carry the social stigma of someone who, who was a, a pedophile, a racist, and someone who raped women. That the social stigma of the cross was like that. If we said we worship someone who was, a, um, who was uh, murdered or charged with, with, with racism or pedophilia or, or rape, and we said, that's our Savior, you would be, they would be like, whoa, 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 you can't say that. That's dis- you. It, it would be like getting behind someone like that in our culture today. The cross had that much social shame and hatred attached to it. To where when people walk by someone that was being crucified, if they knew them or not, they would spit on them because it's so shameful to die naked on a cross. It was the worst form of shame. We have our forms of shame in our culture. Think of the worst form of shame and then say that is the centerpiece of our new found religion called Christianity. That would be insane. And the cross became for the early Christians both the power of God and the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1.24. That, that image, that shameful, and it wasn't just a shameful image, it was also a very a political image, which I actually don't have time to get into for real this time. This is the cross they preached. The cross became the expression and the evidence of God's love. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The cross became the centerpiece of how they understood how God loved them. It was therefore an insane move on the part of the Holy Spirit to make the crucified, a crucified political criminal and his cross the focus and devotion of our devotion and the paradigm of our life in this world. That's insane. But this is what we're up against. This is exactly what's happening in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is taking this very political image, this very this image of shame, this image of, of even hatred and scorn, and making it the center of our devotion. 
making it this, the paradigm for how we're supposed to live in this world. And that doesn't get any more clear than in Philippians chapter 2. Let me read you a passage from Philippians 2. I read it last week. I'll probably read it every week for the next several weeks. This is the centerpiece of it, of what Paul is saying here. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the pattern of cruciformity. Cruciformity is when our life takes the shape of Christ's cross. The pattern of Philippians 2.5 goes something like this. If you're into equations, which I know you are, here is the equation of Philippians chapter 2. Although X, not Y, but rather Z. Can I get an amen? Come on, that's good, right? Okay, so that's not mine. That's Michael Gorman's thing. Okay, so although X, not Y, but Z. Meaning, although status, not selfishness, but selflessness. This is the pattern of Christ. Although he was the very nature God. Although he was God in flesh, not use that to his own advantage. He never did. He could have at any moment told, tell the stones to become bread and eat them. At any moment, if he was hungry, he's like, oh, become bread so I can eat you. He could at any moment call down angels from the cross to come and just fireball everyone who was mocking him. He didn't for a moment use his status as God to his own advantage. Not that. However, what he actually did, although he was God, not to his own advantage, but made himself nothing, being obedient to the way of death on a cross. What you see Jesus doing is he continues to go lower and lower and lower. That's what you actually see him doing. Though he's God, he shows up in human flesh and he goes lower than that and becomes a servant. Now, the word is slave in our Bibles. Slave. He becomes a slave. I, I hope to talk about that more in Philippians. I know that's a triggering word, especially in America. But Paul uses language. He actually opens up by saying, I'm a slave of Christ. And Paul was a slave. He, Paul just wants to be so much like Jesus. Jesus was a slave. I want to be a slave. I'm a slave of Christ. He's writing to the Philippians calling himself and Timothy slaves of Christ. Jesus came, and not only did Jesus become a man, he became a slave, and he became an obedient slave to the point of death, even the death of a cross. That, even when I say, say, frame it that way, that actually adds a, a lot more gravitas to it. You're like, that, that's, that's exactly the way that Jesus won our salvation, showed our, his love for the world. That is, that is the pattern of Jesus. Now, let's look at what Paul does in Philippians 2 to start. Like, this is how Philippians 2 starts, okay? Before you get into the Christ sin, this is how he starts. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, 
that make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of the one spirit and one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, or that word literally is empty glory. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then it goes into Philippians to the Christ poem. Okay, here's what Paul is saying. If any of you have any kind of encouragement from being united with Christ? Is there any encouragement that you've had being a Christian? If you've taken comfort in Christ's love for you, if you share in the Holy Spirit that Christ has given, if you felt the Spirit's tenderness towards you and his compassion towards you, okay, great. Now, have that same love. Have that same Spirit among you as the people of Jesus. By, by, here's how. By doing nothing out of selfish ambition or, or vainglory or vain conceit. Instead, in humility, value the people that you're in community with above yourselves. Don't, don't so much look to your own interests. Um, stop being narcissists and actually look to the interests of other people. Okay, so what you see there is actually the, the pattern all over again. Although X, not Y, but Z. Although you can, we all as creatures can live with selfish ambition. We can live in San Francisco for the self, for our portfolio, for our resume, for our work career, for our advancement, for how many people that we hook up with, for how many times that we've made this X amount of money, how many things we've started and released or whatever. Although I could be here for selfish ambition, not I will not be here for my own interests. Though I can, I will not be here for my own interests. But actually in humility, I will value others' interests above my own. That is the pattern that Paul says, you can, you can actually live for vainglory. You can actually live selfishly. But for Christians, for those that pattern their lives after Christ, we don't live for our own interest. But we actually in humility, we value others and their interests above our own. Now this is introductory. And I don't have time, neither do I think we can absorb all this in one sitting. So I'm going to move on from here. I know right now you're like, can you stop? Because I can't, don't know if I can take any more of this. So let's move on, okay? We're going to revisit this forever. So <laughs> let's move on. The second thing that I want to pull out from this introduction is the word colony. Philippians 1.27 says this. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now, the words translated right there, uh, right in that sentence, conduct yourselves in a manner. Conduct yourselves is literally in the Greek, live out your citizenship. I think conduct yourselves is an unfortunate translation and not helpful to what Paul is actually saying. See, here's, here's some background. And Philippi is located in Macedonia and was during the time of Paul's writing a colony of Rome. That is, Philippi carried the status and the culture of Rome on non-Roman soil. A colony was there to spread the culture and the values of Rome in non-Roman places. And so Macedonia, um, Philippi was Macedonia. It wasn't even in Italy. It wasn't in Rome. But it was a Roman colony, and it was there to spread everything good 
about Rome, Pax Romana, peace in Rome. They were there to spread it, to embody it, to live it out, and to actually colonize Macedonia with all the values of Rome. Now, I know there's all kinds of, again, triggering, work, triggering things that come from colonization, and they did, Rome did that with power and might, and the church has done some horrific things in the name of colonization that Paul never had in mind at all because the pattern is dying for your enemies, so it doesn't even make sense. But I, I, So I'll say that, but I, so if you are by the word colony and colonization triggered at all, please listen to this as Paul writes it, okay? This is what Paul is saying, and this is so good. As Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia, so the church is a colony of heaven in Philippi, whose members were to live as citizens in Philippi. So the church, what Paul is saying to the church, live as citizens of the colony of heaven in Philippi. What he's saying there is that the church is a colony who lives as if Jesus is Lord inside the colony of Philippi that was a colony of Rome. And so Paul's like, okay, in the same way, um, in the same way in that a colony is to spread the values, they do that by brute force and they do that by killing and death and you do that by giving your life away. You do that through cruciformity. Our citizenship is in heaven. Actually, it gets really a little bit more explicit in Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice it doesn't say our citizenship is in heaven, and we can't wait to go there when we die. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from heaven to come to earth to make all things new. Okay? The goal of the Christian faith is not to get there when we die, heaven, but to live as citizens of heaven here and now, to be a colony of heaven in the best sense, and that we're spreading the peace and the love and the justice and the self-sacrificial service, even unto humiliation, serving the other in this city. As we do that, we eagerly await a Savior because if we did that rightly, we'll probably suffer a little bit. And so as we suffer, we eagerly await a Savior who comes to make all wrong, wrong things right, as we say, on earth as it is in heaven. See, this is the way colonies work. And the hope is that the colony would become like and spread the culture of the motherland. And what this means is that we are to live in San Francisco and should strive to be good citizens of SF but we are indeed to be ruled by a different reality. We are to be ruled by a different citizenship, not by the laws of this land, but ruled by the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is cruciform love. Faith that expresses itself through love is all that matters, Paul writes in a different letter. And through our cruciform love to bring heaven to bear on San Francisco to bring its life and culture and relational orientation and truth to bear on SF. And Paul would say that that is done by living as a community, as citizens that are shaped by the cross of Christ, that we, Reality San Francisco, would be a community of cruciformity. This is the message of Philippians. Paul Gorman summarizes the entire letter 
like this. He says, this is what Paul is trying to say in the letter to the Philippians. Live faithfully now as a colony of citizens of that heavenly imperial city in the midst of this colony of Rome. Your Lord and Savior, your emperor is Jesus, whose cruciform pattern of faith, love, power, and hope is the city charter of your colony. And you live by this charter, as you live by this charter, do so in unity, for you must be one as you face persecution together for the sake of Christ. That is the message that Paul is getting through to Philippians. Now, two closing thoughts as we end and move into a time of response. Two closing thoughts. The first one is Paul says in chapter 1, verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, to the degree that we see the cross as Jesus' self-emptying act of love and affection toward us, and we take that affection of His shown to us through His humiliation on the cross, and we take it in and we're comforted by it, to the degree that we're actually, we bring the, 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 the reality of the cross in is the degree that we can actually start having affection for others, the affection of Christ. See, I think we like other people, but sometimes we like them because they're beautiful or because they're helpful or because they're useful to us or because they're clever or whatever, they're talented. But to love people with the affection of Christ is a deeper love. It's a love that's not motivated by what the other person gives you. It's not motivated by how beautiful the other person is or talented or useful. It's motivated by Christ has loved me in self-humiliating fashion. I can't believe he did that for me. I want to love you in a way that, that, is, that, that, feels, that feels self-sacrificial to me, but when I, when I love you that way, it is not a sacrifice at all. It's a joy. To the degree that you take in the, the reality of the cross, to that, to that degree, guys, to that degree, as we meditate on that, that degree that we can love each other with that affection. And so I will say, especially during the season of Lent leading up until Easter, meditate on Christ's cross. Meditate on Christ's sacrifice for you. Traditionally, the church have done this and historically through icons and music and fasting and prayer. I know some of you that might have grown up in a Protestant church, icons are like satanic. They're not. That's that's a lie. They, they're, they're very helpful, beautiful aids in meditating, mentally meditating on Christ's cross. We do that very well in the Protestant tradition through music. Music is another great way. Fasting and prayer. Use this Lenten season to explore the depth of Christ's love to you on the cross. As a part of that meditation, remind yourself as you do that, that your life is to be shaped by his cross. One way that, you, that might be helpful <clears throat> by, of doing that is bringing crosses back as a symbol of jewelry, not a symbol of jewelry, but a symbol of identity. Hold a cross in your hand. I find this very helpful when I pray and meditate, that I'm, I'm rubbing my thumb over the, the shape of a cross and reminding myself, this, my life is to be shaped like this. If you are an artist, draw them if you are a singer, sing about them. If you are a writer, write about them. If you are a painter, 
paint them. We must bring the cross and its message back into our daily consciousness and our daily imagination. Nothing does this better than art. So, artists in here, start to paint again. I know, I know our collective imagination has been so much over the last several years about freedom and victory and, you know, and I, that's, 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 that's okay. But I, I think we need, as the church, if we're going to, I think we're going to survive the onslaught of everything that goes on in our crazy world, we need to be people that are, again, go back to the very, very beginning, shaped by the cross. Did you know there is a giant cross in our city on Mount Davidson, on the top of Mount Davidson? You can Google it or whatever you do. There's a giant concrete cross, giant, I mean huge, um, that's lit up at night, and um, it used to be wooden, but it was burned down three times, but that's a whole different story, but it's now concrete, and it's, and it's beautiful, and it's San Francisco, what do you expect? Um, and it's in the middle of a eucalyptus grove in Mount Davidson. Go there, hike up there, sit at the foot of it, marvel at how small you are and how big it is. It is a beautiful way to pray and be reminded. Lastly, and by way of just maybe some pastoral movement as we move into a time of, of, of responding to God, if you're at a place in your life right now where something feels hard or a point of tension or a point of, point of um, uh, you can't get peace, uh, let me ask you during this time as we respond to pray and meditate and ask the Spirit what it might look like for you to choose the way of the cross in that situation. To choose the way of the cross. To not, and it might be like, I don't want to give up this argument. I don't want to, I don't want to say I'm wrong. I, they're wrong. I know I'm not wrong. Whatever. Um, it might be this thing like, I need to argue for more. I need, I need to make my place in this world. Like, whatever it is, let me just ask you to step back and just meditate on what would it look like to, to choose the way of the cross willingly as your act of, of service to God, as your act of sacrifice. I think um, one of the points that we're going to make in the sermon, a lot of our lives we want to gain and to get and to, and to like, acquire um, uh, an identity and acquire a name and acquire accomplishments. And I think all those things are not bad things. Jesus actually wants some of the things, but not the way that we go after them. He says, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. It's like inverse logic. At the end of Philippians 2, it says, and then God exalted him to the highest and gave him a name that's above every name. I don't think God doesn't want us to be exalted just not to be exalted in the way that the world says to be exalted. It's done as we go, inversely go low, choose the way of the cross, and then let God in His timing exalt us and raise us up. Let's, let's pray. Would you stand with me? If you would, if you can, if there's room, would you um, open up your hands to God or even open up your hands wide in, in the sign of the cross, in the way of the cross. But Lord, as we taught about talked about last week and moving into this week, the vulnerability of, um, of our own arms open in the form of cruciformity is, 
is a difficult thing for us to grasp. We are taught that this world is a scarce place and that abundance doesn't come naturally. It only comes through hard work and optimization and hustle. And we're invited here tonight to lay that narrative down and to take up the narrative of the cross. And it's through uh, giving that we find, it's through dying that we live. This is the way our Christian life is shaped, and it's the way that our relationships must be shaped as well. And so would you offer us grace? I want to pray for my brothers and sisters who are in the midst of a very difficult season in their life, and the way of the cross seems to be impossible, like they'll never get what they want if they do that. I pray that you would minister to them. In Jesus' name.